0: You're listening to an event from the US Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on from where you are joining us this morning. My name is Steve Hadley, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the US Institute of Peace and the moderator for today's discussion. USIP is pleased to have with us today Tom West, the United States Special Representative for Afghanistan for an hour-long discussion on US engagement with Afghanistan. I'd like to thank everyone tuning in to the live stream. And you can engage with us and with each other on Twitter throughout the event using today's hashtag, hashtag USIP Afghanistan. We also invite all of you to take part in today's discussion by asking a question using the chat box function located just below the video player on the USIP event page. We ask that you please include your name and specify from where you are joining us. We'll select several questions from among those we receive and use them in the second part of the discussion this morning. As many of you know, USIP was founded by the US Congress over 35 years ago as an independent, nonpartisan national institute with the goal of preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflict. USIP has been actively engaged in Afghanistan since 2002, focusing on research, training, and dialogues to reduce the drivers of conflict, and enable a durable, inclusive, and peaceful end to the conflict. As we see from the daily headlines coming out of Afghanistan, there is still much more work to be done. USIP continues to support efforts towards an inclusive political process and settlement that will ensure lasting peace and stability in Afghanistan and in the region while protecting the security interests of the United States and our friends and allies, and the fundamental rights of all Afghans. Today marks six months since the Taliban's takeover of Kabul. The changes since then have fundamentally altered the US approach to Afghanistan, although the goals of countering terrorism, maintaining regional stability, seeking an inclusive peace, and protecting Afghan's human rights remain. Afghanistan's already struggling economy has deteriorated dramatically, and the Afghan people are facing a grave humanitarian crisis. Special Representative and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Afghanistan, Tom West, now has the difficult task of representing and advancing U.S. objectives in Afghanistan. As part of his efforts, he engages in dialogue with representatives of the Taliban, regional leaders, the international community, and Afghan political, civil society, and diaspora, representatives seeking to find ways to assist the Afghan people while protecting U.S. national security. America is lucky to have Tom in this role, given his deep experience in the region and with Afghanistan. And Special Representative West will first provide some introductory remarks on current U.S. policies and priorities in Afghanistan. After that, I will conduct a brief conversation with Tom and then field questions to him from our online audience. So Tom, welcome to USIP. We're grateful to have you. Thank you for
1: taking the time today. Over to you. Um, Steve, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, Thank you to those watching virtually, in particular those uh, from Afghanistan and the region. It's a pleasure to be here. USIP, let me first say, has been an extraordinary partner of the United States uh, on Afghanistan issues over four American administrations. I cannot think of an organization on the planet that brings uh, a greater depth of expertise on every enduring national priority that we have in Afghanistan and the region, and so, Steve, we look forward to continuing this partnership with you under uh, very changed and challenging circumstances. I don't wanna take up too much time with prepared remarks, but I do wanna touch on a few priorities. I wanna offer thoughts about, as Steve said, where we are six months after the Taliban takeover in August. First, it struck me that our goals today in Afghanistan are not too terribly different from what they were a decade ago when we had over 100,000 American troops in Afghanistan. We wish to see and to support the emergence of a peaceful state that never again harbors terrorists who threaten the United States, our allies, or others, and in which the rights of all its people, women and men, girls and boys, are upheld. And in our strong view, diplomacy with the Taliban, diplomacy with our allies, Diplomacy with powers in the region is an essential means as we seek to achieve these objectives. I want to assure this group that the most urgent priority animating diplomacy as well as American decision-making on Afghanistan is to meaningfully address the humanitarian and economic crises in Afghanistan. I think we could spend a lot of time examining the causes of the current humanitarian and economic collapse It is a fact that Afghanistan is undergoing the worst drought it has seen in 30 years. It's a fact that Afghanistan is continuing to suffer from the COVID-19 pandemic, that the economy has enduring structural weaknesses that we grappled with during the time of the Republic as well. But too many Afghans are starving today. Too many Afghans are cold this winter. We must all act faster. That goes for the United States, that goes for our allies, that goes for partners in the region. And that goes for the Taliban as well. The United States is the leading humanitarian assistance donor. We contributed over half a billion dollars between August and December last year. We've pledged already 308 million as a means to begin to meet the $4.4 billion appeal that Martin Griffiths announced last year. We welcome very much Pakistan's hosting of an OIC extraordinary ministerial in December. And we hope that the establishment of a trust fund uh, led by the Islamic Development Bank Uh, will result in pledges that that help to meet that $4.4 billion appeal. I want to say that humanitarian aid worker access across Afghanistan today is better than it has been in over a decade. And this is a continuing uh, uh, report that we have directly from implementers on the ground. When we began interagency dialogue with the Taliban, I remember uh, that female humanitarian aid workers really only had access in about five or six provinces. Uh, Today, that number is 34. It's countrywide, and so I think the Taliban deserve some credit uh, for solid humanitarian aid access across the country. The United States has worked together with other leading members of the World Bank to ensure that the Afghanistan Reconstruction Trust Fund is uh, best utilized to support Afghanistan at this time. Uh, We've ensured that over $300 million is allocated to the Sehat Mandi Health Program and we are in active discussions with World Bank leadership on the disposition of the remaining 1.2 billion dollars. We have passed six general licenses and a UN Security Council resolution 2615 on December 22nd with the aim of having humanitarian aid workers and their activities fundamentally eased as well as to pave the way for the provision of basic services countrywide. We have backed an arrangement with the private sector in Europe that has paved the way for the shipment of hundreds of millions in physical cash into private banks in Afghanistan explicitly for the purpose of helping humanitarian aid workers uh, and relief organizations scale up. We are also closely tracking talks between the World Bank, the UN, and private sector actors regarding the establishment of a humanitarian exchange facility that we hope will also contribute to addressing deep and concerning liquidity shortages in the economy. I want to assure this audience that we continue to look at our domestic licensing posture as well as our posture at the UN. We want to see greater licit economic activity in the economy. And on Friday, the president signed an executive order that I frankly think is deeply misunderstood and which I think has uh, has been uh, uh, reported on incorrectly in some outlets. Fundamentally, this action was about protecting $3.5 billion for the Afghan people, for the benefit of the Afghan people. There remains $3.5 billion in a court process, but I want to make very clear that no decisions have been made by that court on awards to litigants in that process. And I look forward to tough questions on this issue as we start the Q&A. I want to touch on just a couple other uh, campaigns of work that we have when it comes to the economic crisis underway. Uh, The first is that From the very outset of our talks with the Taliban, they have brought professional technocrats from the Afghanistan bank, the central bank, to engage with us uh, on critical issues, and and we welcome their presence and we welcome their uh, uh, continuing work. Um, A range of senior technocrats left Kabul from that central bank uh, after the events of August, and we saw certain functions atrophy or altogether disappear. But rather than simply admire the problem, we have engaged in a professional dialogue with these technocrats and with the Taliban leadership over steps that they can take to enhance functionality, to bring in third party contractors to both audit as well as uh, deliver capacity building assistance, and also to enhance the central bank's independence. And so that's an ongoing discussion. I also just want to highlight as a part of how we think about the economic crisis that we do run into challenges that are are simply very hard to solve. And I'll mention just one. When I talk to big American banks, when I talk to foreign banks as well, um, they have shareholders. And when they look at the market in Afghanistan, it is not just risky, it is not profitable. And so we cannot compel banks to engage in Afghanistan. Um, We can encourage them to do so. Uh, But that is an ongoing challenge for which there are no easy solutions and for which we would invite good ideas uh, within the audience and here at USIP as well. Now I hear in this job criticism on an almost daily basis that the United States is not acting fast enough, that the World Bank is not acting fast enough, that the UN is not acting fast enough. Uh, the Countries of the region need to move faster. It is truly not for a dearth of attention among the senior most American policymakers and leaders um, on these issues. Uh, These problems simply are quite hard to solve. And again, I would invite good ideas from the audience and from USIP as we work through this. Now, together with the Treasury Department, with USAID, with intelligence community colleagues, we are in regular touch with the Taliban. We have a relatively honest and productive dialogue with uh, the Taliban, with leaders from across their organization. So I want to mention several priority efforts. First, on terrorism. We have an enduring interest in ensuring that the Taliban fulfill their commitments not to allow Afghan territory to be used by foreign terrorists to harm anyone. And I have to say that uh, month on month, I have found our dialogue on this subject become more honest and more candid. I believe that the Taliban are sincere in their efforts to contain ISIS-K. We have deep concerns about widespread reports of EJKs as part of that process of collective punishment. But I think their uh, intent to contain ISIS-K is very sincere. And I certainly join others in condemning the horrific attacks in Kabul, and Kunduz, uh, uh, in Kandahar, and in others against Afghan civilians. Um, our dialogue on al-Qaeda remains a challenge. I think we want to have greater confidence in uh, the steps that are being taken to contain AQIS as well as al-Qaeda core. But we want to see no terrorist uh, uh, organizations operating in Afghanistan. So that includes TTP and Jaishi Mohammed and Lashkar-e-Taiba as well. On the education of women and girls, Steve, I have to say that uh, among the Taliban's first requests of us in October was this, help put our civil servants back to work, 500,000 strong. And there is a readiness in the international community to start with the education sector after health. Um, uh, We applaud very much the steps forward that the EU and Germany have taken in pledging assistance. Uh, The World Bank is uh, currently considering uh, a quite large sum to support the education sector as well. We've seen positive statements from Taliban leaders about a readiness uh, to, to see the enrollment of women and girls at all levels across large swaths of the country after Nowruz. At this point, statements are not enough. We want to examine the situation after Nowruz. but again, I repeat that I detect a real readiness within the international community to support the education sector. And The last thing I would say on education is I believe the Taliban will make decisions to enroll women and girls at all levels not out of uh, a response to international pressure at all. I think this is a genuine domestic Afghan demand and a basic human right that we hear from across the country. On human rights, our dialogue is blunt and two-way. I welcome very much the appointment of Special Envoy Rina Amiri to her position as the lead in our government on Afghan women and girls uh, and human rights. She has just hit the road yesterday. She brings incredible uh, experience and, and, and credibility to this role, and she joined us in Oslo for the last round of talks. She and I raised reprisal killings, an increase in disappearances. I'd say on this issue that the Taliban continue to assert that these uh, are inconsistent with their policy of general amnesty, which we uh, welcome, but that we want to see greater steps uh, to bring to justice, to hold accountable those who are acting inconsistent with this policy. And our general sense is that reprisals and disappearances are underreported. Second, on media, it is positive uh, that we see a range of outlets uh, uh, that are a reflection of, of one of the greatest pieces of our legacy, the international community's legacy in Afghanistan over the 20 years, that are continuing to operate today. I know of particular outlets who, since August, have hired scores of additional women reporters. This is positive, and they will hold uh, the Taliban accountable uh, and and be in touch with, with the Afghan people. But there are widespread reports of beatings, of intimidation, of efforts to curtail honest reporting that do give us great pause. Reena and I are extremely concerned about a rise in arbitrary detentions. I think it was positive that we saw the release of particular women protesters in recent days, but this tactic must end. I find it troubling. I think that the Taliban don't fully appreciate the level of scrutiny by the international community on this issue um, and the depth of concern and resonance around uh, uh, harassment of, of women protesters in the societies and among the parliaments and congresses of every potential supporter of Afghanistan in the future. I wanna raise just one final issue before we turn to Q&A and that is that I find an encouraging and significant consensus within the international community both between the West as well as the major powers of the region to see the richness of Afghan society reflected in Afghan's leadership. It's our collective view that that is not the case today. And I'll give you the example uh, that obviously we have a lot of disagreements with Iran and Russia, but I think in Iran and Russia's public statements and in my knowledge of their diplomatic engagement as well, this is a consistent call by them here to see the richness of Afghan uh, society reflected in leadership. uh, And Afghans are calling for national dialogue. It's not for the United States. It's not for the international community, I think, to be prescriptive about what steps the Taliban take as they seek to consult their people on a move from an acting government to a permanent government, on a a move from a suggestion of the laws of the land to a permanent constitution. Um, But that's a process uh, that that needs to to begin, and and unfortunately, at the moment, we haven't seen it. So thank you, Steve. Tom, thank you for a very Complete and detailed
0: statement about the challenges, but also what our administration, your, the administration, is doing to meet them. Uh, I'm going to follow up on four or five of them, and then we'll turn to audience uh, Q&A. I want to pick up on the the central bank asset question, which you raised in the recent executive order. You know, you're a little bit damned if you do, damned if you don't. The litigants wonder why you've reduced a potential recovery fund from $7 billion to three point five, and the Afghans wonder why you've given away $3.5 billion of their money to uh, potential litigants here in the United States. Uh, the, the reaction has been pretty uh, uh, vociferous within Afghanistan, not just Taliban, but other aspects of society. And the Taliban, I think, this morning was saying that if this issue is not resolved, it could cause them to reconsider the relationship between the United States and the Taliban, which as you suggest, has been fairly constructive in many respects. What do you say to the Afghans? Uh, and do you think we can you can reassure them to the point where this doesn't get in the way of cooperation in other areas such as you mentioned in your opening statement?
1: Well, first, Steve, let me say that this is an issue of extraordinary legal complexity that our administration has been grappling with for over six months at this point Um, i want to talk about where we were on thursday before the executive order and then i want to talk about where we are today and then look ahead to a process that will include afghan consultation on the uses uh, of of uh, some of these monies now where were we on thursday before the executive order Uh, the afghan people did not have access to suspended $7 billion worth of reserves that the courts had ordered the Fed as well as other banks uh, to suspend access to while their process continued. So the action on Friday fundamentally was about making available $3.5 billion for the benefit of the Afghan people uh, uh, and to not wait for these court processes uh, uh, to, to conclude. Now the $3.5 billion that remains within the court process, um, that is simply half of what it was on Thursday. That court process now will continue. And we haven't said as an administration, uh, we haven't prejudged uh, what conclusions the court and the juries uh, will come to um, uh, on whether or not to award uh, some or none or all of that $3.5 billion uh, to litigants, to victims of terrorism. That is a court process. You know that our system involves three branches of government that are separate. We cannot compel the courts to act in any particular way. But again, I want to just make very clear that the administration is allowing a court process that was ongoing on Thursday to continue, but with half the resources at its disposal, while $3.5 billion has been protected and preserved for the benefit of the Afghan people. I know in some of our rollout on uh, Friday and Saturday that uh, there's been discussion of a temporary finance mechanism. And I think we've been very honest that we are early in our discussions with other countries over the establishment of this mechanism. Um, But I want to assure folks who are listening today that as we seek to establish a mechanism that its governance and the stewardship of this $3.5 billion it it must involve uh, consultation, meaningful consultation uh, with professional Afghans with deep experience in this space. Um, Second, there's been, I think, a lot of speculation about uses. And this is one where uh, some of the press coverage has not been correct. Um, We have not made a judgment that all 3.5 billion of these dollars uh, will be channeled through the United Nations and and spent on humanitarian assistance. In fact, as I have spoken with economists, as well as Afghans who've been leaders of the central bank, who've been leaders of the finance ministry um, over the past several weeks, the consistent opinion that I hear is that uh, it would be not a good use of these resources to channel them through the United United Nations and for humanitarian assistance. Rather, this $3.5 billion represents the potential recapitalization of a future central bank that is recognized um, and the future recapitalization of a financial system. So again, we are early in our discussions with other countries around the establishment of a temporary finance mechanism, and I just want to assure everyone listening here that there will be professional Afghans involved in this process um, as we move ahead. So this is going to be not a U.S.
0: diktat, but this is going to be an an Afghan decision. Others will participate, but it will be, in the end of the day, an Afghan decision about how these funds will be
1: used? I think there will be Afghans absolutely involved uh, in this decision. I don't want to pretend that it will be solely an Afghan decision. And when I say Afghan, I do not mean the Taliban to be very clear, I mean professional Afghans with deep experience in this space. Great. Uh, I'm gonna jump around a bit if I can.
0: I wanna ask you a little bit about civil society and its current uh, status in Afghanistan. Obviously, before the Taliban takeover, there were hundreds of US programs funding Afghan media, civil society organizations. Since the Taliban takeover, most of that funding has, of course, been stopped or diverted for to humanitarian assistance and basic health and education services, which is wholly appropriate. But what is the United States now doing, and what can it do to continue to support Afghan civil society Mm. as a voice for those who favor an inclusive society and are not really represented by the current configuration of the Taliban
1: regime? Steve, thank you. Before I answer your question on um, what the United States can do, let me commend Norway's initiative um, on the 24th and 25th uh, to host a dialogue that 14 courageous members of civil society attended. Um, Let me welcome the Taliban's honest and open engagement with that group. Um, I think what you saw were assembled in Oslo, uh, a group of journalists, of former public servants, heads of private sector entities as well as women rights activists who put their differences aside and came together, uh, organized cogently, and delivered a unified message to the Taliban uh, that they want to see women and girls' rights protected, that they want to see space for media uh, uh, and journalists to do their work freely, um, that they want to see freedom of expression uh, protected, that they want to see a national political process unfold. Now that is a dialogue that we very much hope will continue. Uh, We hope that it takes place inside of Afghanistan. I think it's um, unfortunate that this meeting took place in some ways um, outside of Afghanistan when a lot of these figures, a lot of these leaders uh, continue to live in Afghanistan today. Um, uh, Now, when it comes to what the United States can do, um, I'm at a bit of a, I'm not able to get into a whole lot of detail, but let me just say that um, we ran through a, a, a diligent exercise internally to review our entire assistance portfolio um, uh, after August 15th. And we greenlit a wide range of programs that today continue to support uh, civil society actors for precisely the reasons that you outline. Um, now, that support will continue. Uh, and as you say, I think we will need to consult with the Congress uh, regarding an enduring commitment to civil society actors who, as I said at the outset, represent some of the best of our legacy.
0: Thank you for that. Let me ask you a little bit about counterterrorism commitments. The US withdrawal, of course, was predicated on the Doha agreement of February 2020, which uh, committed uh, the Taliban not to allow terrorist groups, including Al Qaeda and ISIS, And I quote, to use Afghan soil to shelter, train, fundraise, or plan attacks against the United States or its friends and allies. So the question is, uh, you touched on a little bit in your remarks. Uh, How is the Taliban doing? Do they consider themselves to continue to be bound by that commitment? How would you rate their progress in making good on that commitment? And quite frankly, it's been pretty clear that ISIS continues to be, ISIS-K continues to be active, and in a little bit the Taliban are having their hands full dealing with ISIS-K. Is this an area where the United States actually, through intelligence channels or elsewhere, might cooperate with the the Taliban in dealing
1: with the problem of ISIS-K in in Afghanistan? Steve, I'll share with you that this is one issue uh, that, where I think the Taliban are frustrated with, in their view, um, the lack of a recognition by the international community of the progress in their view that they have achieved uh, since coming to power. Now, I'm not gonna tell you that that's our assessment, but I would just share with you that uh, the Taliban uh, uh, assessment is that they have made very significant gains against ISIS-K over the past several months. Um, Now, uh, I myself am very worried that what we are seeing now, um, between early November and now, we haven't, uh, thank goodness, seen a massive attack uh, on the order of the attacks that we saw in Kabul and Kunduz and Kandahar uh, that targeted civilians, Um, and that is a good thing. Um, I worry that this is a pause uh, and that when the weather warms up, um, we are going to see uh, uh, attacks pick up, including potentially large-scale attacks. Um, uh, But when it comes to ISIS-K, I truly believe it's not a matter of capability, it's a matter of will, or sorry, it's not a matter of will, it's a matter of capability when it comes to the fulsomeness and effectiveness of their response. And as I said, and I know there are limits to what I'm able to say, our dialogue on these issues is much more honest and much more candid uh, today than it was during the life of the part of the negotiation that I was a part of between January and August 15th. Um, And it's more honest than it was in in September uh, and October as well. You mentioned, Steve, the possibility of, of cooperation with the Taliban, and I'll tell you that the Taliban has no interest in cooperating with the United States uh, when it comes to fulfillment of their uh, uh, commitments in the Doha agreement. Um, And so we have an honest dialogue. There are limits, I think, within our system, which I can't get into, uh, uh, regarding uh, ways in which uh, we can cooperate with entities in this space, um, and certainly concerns about uh, respect for the law of armed conflict uh, that we have Um, uh, But uh, from their perspective, uh, this is a a, a program and a commitment that they will handle on their own. Interesting. Uh, I want to ask
0: you a little bit about Pakistan and U.S.-Pakistan relations. Uh, Let me put it this way. How does Pakistan see the situation in Afghanistan today and their relationship with the Taliban? There have been some... Uh, disagreements uh, in some sense that Pakistan has not recognized the Taliban. There's been disputes about the border. There are questions about the Taliban's willingness to crack down on the TTP, which is a terrorist group that is opposed uh, to the Pakistan government and very active in trying to disrupt it. Uh, How much influence does Pakistan have now over the Afghan Taliban? And how much alignment is there between the United States and Pakistan now with respect to our respective Afghanistan
1: policy? Steve, during the life of the negotiation, as I said, from January until August, and as I understand it in the years beforehand as well, uh, we were in very close touch with the leadership of Pakistan regarding steps that we urged Pakistan to take uh, to enhance the prospects of a negotiated settlement Uh, to this conflict. And I think had Pakistan taken some of those steps uh, in a more meaningful and consistent way, I think we would be in a different place today. I genuinely do. Um, Now, it is a mark of our pragmatism, in my view, that in Washington, you are not hearing political leaders from across the spectrum uh, spending time and energy uh, criticizing Pakistan and looking, looking backwards. Um, I frankly think that uh, that energy is is um, not called called for given the situation in Afghanistan today, um, and so I think when it comes to pakistan 's interests in Afghanistan today, um, they face challenges they face real challenges of capacity. I think there's a recognition in Pakistan that the the, the current leadership of the in, interim authorities in Afghanistan is not truly representative and uh, potentially not sustainable. Um, they face challenges uh, that have to do with the Taliban's long standing relationships with Tariqi Taliban Pakistan. Um, and so uh, when it comes to border management, TTP, uh, representative government, um, I, I think Pakistan faces challenges. I will say just in recent weeks we saw. Uh, significant visits, including by the National Security Advisor to Kabul. Um, uh, I think that uh, within the leadership uh, of, of uh, the Pakistani, both security and civilian establishment, um, that they share many of our priorities. It's a, always a question of what kind of leverage they're willing to use in order to see those priorities um, advanced. And um, Lastly, I'd say that I have productive and good and honest relationships, uh, I think, with, uh, with Pakistani leaders. And they have a huge amount of expertise in their system uh, on these matters. And I think we don't have a choice but to work with Pakistan on the way ahead.
0: I want to ask you a little bit of an indelicate question.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you have said some uh, positive things about cooperation with the Taliban at this point but the history of the Taliban, both through the conflict and during the time when they were in power, is a pretty grisly history. Uh, And the question is really, is there a viable opposition within Afghanistan Mm -hmm. to the Taliban at the present time? And should we, uh, as a matter of policy, be encouraging that opposition to the Taliban? Or do we really accept this as a sort of fait accompli? What's our policy on on this question about opposition to the Taliban?
1: What we want to see, Steve, is the emergence of a stable and sustainable political dispensation via peaceful means. Um, Now, I'll give you the example of the 14 civil society uh, who showed up in Oslo. They told me uh, that they are among Afghans who believe um, that the better way forward at the moment is to work with and seek to shape Taliban policies. That is the view of the United States today as well. Um, uh, So we are not supporting organized armed opposition to the Taliban and we would discourage other powers from doing so as well. I would also tell you though that I worry as um, any student of Afghanistan and of history would, that there is a window uh, uh, where Afghans will make their own decisions, where powers in the regions will make their own decisions, um, to begin supporting armed opposition in uh, a fundamentally more stepped up way. Um, I'm not gonna venture a guess on on when that window closes, but I worry that the Taliban do not share a sense of great urgency around these questions. I worry that they're making the same mistake that Burhanuddin Rabbani made in 1992. They're making the same mistake that they made uh, when they came to power between 96 and 98. Frankly, Steve, they're making the same mistake that the United States made in the early 2000s, um, not to reconcile when we had a chance with the Taliban in the early 2000s, to allow them to return to Afghanistan and live in a dignified uh, uh, manner. But uh, uh, again, they are making the same mistake today, and, and we do want to see genuine, meaningful outreach and inclusion of uh, uh, Afghanistan's rich society when it comes to movement to a permanent government. I'm going to ask you one question, and then we'll go to questions
0: from the audience. And it's what you just talked about, the regional consensus at this point. There seems to be a consensus to not recognize the Taliban at this point and to uh, demand that it demonstrate greater respect for human rights, respect for women's rights, and establish, as you said, a more inclusive government that reflects all aspects of Taliban, of of Afghan society. How durable is that consensus? Uh, And how long will it last? And at what point, as you suggested, uh, do the the centripetal forces uh, in the region begin to reemerge and outside powers start uh, picking champions within Afghanistan's Afghan society and make it more difficult
1: to achieve the kind of outcome you described. Our diplomacy with the powers of the region is incredibly important. So there has been uh, an expanded troika format in operation for years at this point at this point that includes, United States, Russia, uh, China, and Pakistan. Um, Iran is an important power in the region, and so is India. Um, These countries all have a vote on the way ahead. And as you say, I find so far an encouraging degree of unity when it comes to holding on recognition uh, for more meaningful steps toward uh, respect for the rights of all Afghans, for uh, a move toward a more representative government, uh, toward uh, responsible stewardship of the economy. Um, To your question on how durable that consensus is, um, we are already seeing certain countries in the region uh, take steps that I think we would not take. Uh, For instance, having Taliban diplomats uh, serve in their capitals and at their consulates, um, that's not a step we would take uh, by any stretch of the imagination. but on the whole, I do find uh, a, a pretty strong degree of consensus and the Troika Plus uh, is a format uh, that, that we do find vi- uh, viable and valuable uh, and one in which uh, we intend to continue to invest. Let me ask you uh,
0: some now questions from the audience. One comes from Zila Nori for Voice of America. Has President Biden's decision to unfreeze the Afghan foreign assets paved the path for Taliban recognition? How far are the Taliban from being recognized by the United States and the rest of the world? You touched on this. Is there something more you want to say on this subject?
1: Um, I think the short answer to your question is the. EO, the executive order, to protect and preserve $3.5 billion for the benefit of the Afghan people, a step toward recognition? The answer is no. Um, the intent of, of that move is, is, is really to protect and preserve these, these assets. Uh, um, uh, and I, I talked a lot about um, their potential uses in the future. When it comes to recognition more broadly, I think there is a, a, a consensus within the international community as well as two UN Security Council resolutions that chart up the kind of uh, conduct we wanna see. Um, the way we think about it in our system, we do wanna see the establishment of a solid record of responsible conduct uh, before we take fundamental steps toward, uh, toward normalization. Got it.
0: Sami Jabara Amarkel asks, do you think America's regional competitors benefit from US disengagement with Afghanistan, there was some initial celebration, I think, on the part of Pakistan, China, uh, maybe Russia, but certainly Pakistan and China. And then I think a little bit of a second thought of, "Oh my goodness, now this is our problem." What is the uh, what is their attitude at this point towards the U.S. disengagement?
1: I think they do not benefit from uh, uh, American fundamental disengagement from the region. I think the now look, we can't, we can't call Afghanistan over the past 20 years basically stable. I think that's an unfair characterization. But today, is there a real possibility of seeing refugee outflows in the coming months uh, in the hundreds of thousands or more? Yes, I think that is a worrying possibility. Is there a danger of seeing uh, an even greater uptick in uh, the, the movement of uh, narcotics outside of Afghanistan into neighboring countries? Yes, I think there is. Um, Is there uh, a concern, as we said, about uh, not the will, but the capability of the Taliban to contain terrorists who may wish neighbors harm? Yes, I think there are. And so for those reasons, uh, if I were neighbors, I might worry about uh, American disengagement.
0: This is a question from Naseed Hajari of Bloomberg. What else can we do to revive the Afghan private sector? Fear of sanction appears to be scaring foreign banks away from doing business with any counterparties in Afghanistan. How can the US alleviate that fear? It's an issue you touched on a little bit of it. How do we incentivize the private sector to engage in what is certainly an uncertain economic and political situation in Afghanistan?
1: You know, one, one, I, I suspect that the Afghan private sector is in close touch with the Taliban. I suspect that they are in close touch with uh, central bank authorities as well. Um, but I'd say that I hope that engagement is, is robust and continues. Um, uh, we may consider uh, uh, steps that, that would signal uh, a support for greater, greater uh, activity in the economy, uh, greater licit commercial and private activity. Um, and so that's certainly something we're continue, continuing to deliberate on. But as for the role of of the Afghan private sector, be in touch with the central bank and and make clear that you have a strong demand signal from the United States for that institution's professionalization, as well as uh, steps to make it more independent.
0: This is a question from Jennifer Hansler of CNN. I'm curious how many Afghan allies, SIV applicants, and others Has the U.S. gotten out since the U.S. withdrawal? And what are you telling desperate Afghans who want to leave the country still? And how many SIV applicants remain in Afghanistan?
1: You might explain what SIV is to the audience. Sure. An SIV is a special immigrant visa. Um, So I have to say, uh, I am not meaning to pass the buck on this one, but there is a... uh, A whole office at the State Department led by my very capable colleague, Ambassador Beth Jones, uh, called CARE, uh, which is uh, chiefly in charge of the entire effort uh, both to support the continuing departure uh, from Afghanistan of of SIVs, of American citizens, of LPRs, uh, as well as the the diligent movement of uh, Afghans who are on lily pads abroad into the United States, and then their resettlement together with DHS. Steve, the demand signal uh, uh, for departures from Afghanistan, uh, if I'm speaking honestly, uh, probably outstrips our ability to absorb them into our country. Um, And that is uh, a a fact that that we have to grapple with uh, uh, on a a daily basis. Um, It's something that I know members of Congress are are grappling with as well as um, constituents reach out to them uh, looking for support. We've certainly had to prioritize American citizens, LPRs, uh, green, hard, green card holders, and SIVs, um, and and we have seen the Taliban not excise from any list uh, that we have sought to to have depart from Afghanistan any SIV or uh, American citizen um, or LPR who had proper documentation, and that is a good thing. It's just a. A question of our absorptive capacity and um, and demand uh, from from the ground. Uh, I'm in touch with Afghans on a daily basis who do fear uh, 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 the the situation as well as uh, coming uh, to harm at the hands of the Taliban. Um, and there are no easy answers to those questions. You were very
0: eloquent about um, the status of women and the need for the detention, arbitrary detention of women to end, the disappearance of women needs to end. Uh, The Taliban have talked about they will allow women's education to resume uh, at all levels. Uh, The question really is, uh, will it happen? And how do we uh, ensure that it happens? And I would say there's a a question really about how we will know whether it is happening or not. Uh, Because uh, many of our international partners, as well as the United States, don't have active missions in Kabul. There's been a shrinking of media space, of civil society space. Uh, We know a lot less about what's going on in Afghanistan now than we did before. So the question is, how will we know whether these commitments are, in fact, being carried out throughout the country? and what do we do to enhance our ability to monitor what's going on, and then what do we do to hold the Taliban accountable for performing on their statements in these two areas?
1: So on the first question, Steve, it's something we grapple with on an almost daily basis. Um, To go from a situation where we had a, a very large embassy, one of the largest in the country, Um, a terrific and courageous and knowledgeable local staff across the country um, um, to a situation where we do not have uh, uh, those assets in in, in place. And so you're right, I think we have fundamentally lost um, a a finger-touch feel for what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, I found it encouraging that the Taliban have said they will support a, an independent verification mechanism when it comes to whether or not women and girls are enrolled at all levels across the country. I think the role of the special rapporteur, uh, a decision on that, that position, I think, will be made uh, within the UN in March. Um, the, that person's role, how that person is staffed, uh, will be very, very important. And I think UNAMA's mandate is, is critical in this regard too. Um, I think UNAMA's mandate needs to uh, uh, remain dual. It must have both uh, a political and governance component as well as a humanitarian component. But monitoring and verification will be essential in this regard as well. And what kind of leverage do we have realistically over the Taliban if they don't perform? Well, I'll give you the example of education. Um, Right now, we don't have terrific data um, on uh, enrollment, and I think we probably won't for a period of months. But if it becomes clear, uh, and this is just one example I'll I'll cite to you, if it becomes clear that judging on the basis of uh, uh, data from 2019 regarding enrollment of women and girls uh, countrywide, if it becomes clear that uh, we've seen just a dramatic uh, turn backwards in certain parts of the country where during the republic's time, women and girls were in school um, uh, at all levels, then I think we have to think about consequences. I think we have to think about uh, suspension of stipends, suspension of support uh, for that sector and and see if that doesn't, uh, uh, that doesn't encourage the, the right kind of policy and the right kind of conduct. Um, I mean, when it comes to respect for uh, women and girls' rights, arbitrary pretensions, uh, uh, ceasing, and so forth, I do think that that public pressure is is, um, uh, important. Uh, uh, I do think the Taliban are uh, mindful of their reputation internationally. Um, And I do think there's a variation within the Taliban on these issues. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail about that, but uh, we have forced a conversation uh, within the Taliban um, between those who don't support these moves and those who do, and, um, and we have to see the continuation of that conversation uh, spurred not just by the United States uh, or our allies, but also by the region.
0: What are the prospects for internal pressure? There were some demonstrations, small to, to be sure, in support of women's rights. Uh, the the disappearances, the detentions you talked about, really have snuffed that out. Um, how much space is there for internal pressure on the Taliban at this point?
1: I think internal pressure can take a lot of forms. Um, so from my time in Kunar, which admittedly was a long time ago and very different circumstances, um, when a local community community did not like how uh, a a particular policy was being unveiled. Um, um, It could be a collection of dozens of men who who go to a a district governor and and, uh, vociferously complain um, about how something is happening. Um, So I wouldn't say that um, protests, public protests by women are the only form of potential internal pressure. I think that um, elders from across Afghanistan, women and men, um, uh, uh, are exerting pressure. Uh, But to your point on on space, um, we are continuing to assess uh, the degree to which that space really does exist. This is a question from Sue Sawowski.
0: She asks, with the current difficulty getting humanitarian funds into Afghanistan, How will the Biden administration increase that funding? And what are the biggest obstacles to increasing that funding? And what are the targeted solutions?
1: When it comes to humanitarian aid? Yes,
0: yes. Humanitarian funds, Mm -hmm. I think funds for humanitarian assistance into the country.
1: So right now, as far as I know, we we do not face a big challenge. And I take my cues from the United Nations and from ICRC and IRC and and, uh, Norwegian Refugee Council and other organizations. I don't think we face a big uh, uh, hurdle when it comes to getting uh, uh, funds into the country explicitly for humanitarian use. I think the problem is that um, a purely humanitarian response to what is unfolding is, is deeply insufficient. Um, And so the bigger challenge is uh, greater liquidity within the economy writ large. And there, you need to see a restoration of professional um, and independent central bank functions. Um, And and we also need to see um, the introduction of uh, new Afghan currency, um, which we support uh, by Polish and French manufacturers. Um, uh, That, I think, is is the bigger challenge. Certainly humanitarian assistance,
0: then getting the financial system up and running. But at some point uh, to be sustainable, the, the economy needs to get back yeah. uh, in operation, the private sector needs to get back in operation, the agricultural sec- sector needs to get back in operation. Is the U.S. government prepared and do you have plans in preparation to assist in those sort of second and third order steps that are really required? For this country to get back on its feet
1: in a more sustainable way? To be honest with you, Steve, at this stage, um, we are not uh, planning, uh, I don't want to mislead you, we're not planning for uh, a major bilateral program of development assistance, for instance. Um, I think this question of, of how the international community supports a smaller but, uh, but still sustainable Afghan economy that sees... Um, Afghans stay in Afghanistan um, is is, uh, 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 an enormous challenge that deserves our attention.
0: This is a question from Shamamud Mihail, and I'm gonna edit it slightly. I think he will uh, allow me to do so. For the Taliban to have national and international legitimacy, they need to have a roadmap for government, governance. And I think he means the kind of inclusive governance you've been talking about. At what point will the U.S. continue to engage with the Taliban without domestic legitimacy and without their having come up with that kind of roadmap? At what point mm. do we say, you know, they have not kept faith with with what is we believe is required for a really sustainable, peaceful Afghanistan? Sure, perhaps
1: change our policy. So, I think, I think what uh, uh, the honorable minister is asking is, um, is there a point at which the United States decides to stop engaging the Taliban? Um, and and it, it, among the criteria uh, uh, in his contention would be um, whether they've, they've pursued a national political process. Um, You know, at the moment, I think the the jury is out on what uh, diplomacy with the Taliban produces. Um, uh, You know, when it comes to education, safe passage, and terrorism, I'd say that our diplomacy has clarified uh, uh, where we stand. When it comes to human rights, uh, a political process, and um, reprisal killings, I'll say our diplomacy has not produced um, what we what we want it to. Um, but as for a, a particular moment in time when we will decide not to engage the Taliban anymore, um, um, I don't think we will reach that conclusion uh, uh, in the coming coming weeks or months. I have two
0: questions, and then we'll 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 call it a day. Uh, this one. You've been across the table from the Taliban when they were in insurgency and now as de facto rulers of Afghanistan. Are there changes in Taliban positions before and after the takeover? And what does that tell you about how they will rule going forward?
1: I think that the substance of what we discussed uh, before the takeover and after the takeover uh, have changed. And they have had to change because of uh, the the situation in the country. So, uh, you know, we did not have a significant dialogue ongoing with the Taliban regarding um, humanitarian relief. We did not have a uh, before August 15th. Um, We were not discussing central bank functionality um, and, and it has been positive that they have brought professionals to the table uh, on, on that subject. On um, some issues, worryingly, their positions have, have remained uh, obdurate. Um, and I think particularly on the question of representative government and inclusivity, um, there has been a, a, a troubling uh, uh, commonality between August 15th uh, and after. I'll say that on, when it comes to women's rights, uh, again, I, without going into too much detail, I detect a, a true variation in, in positions among, uh, um, uh, among and within the Taliban. That was true before August 15th, and it's true today. Last
0: question. The UN has become a primary provider of humanitarian assistance. And the UN assistance mission in Afghanistan has a robust political mission on the ground in Kabul that includes monitoring of human rights. So for a lot of things we've been talking about, they seem to have a a central role. Uh, Their mandate is up for renewal uh, in March. Uh, Do you expect obstacles at the UN to the renewing of UNAMA's current
1: mandate? When it comes to uh, big UN missions in, in uh, countries that are either post-conflict or, or in ongoing conflict, um, I think there are very often uh, disagreements among Security Council members, among uh, those with influence on these questions. So do I expect there to be disagreement? Um, I expect there to be a very healthy debate. Um, I think it's in all of our collective interests uh, to see the UN continue to play a very robust role um, both on professional questions of, of governance uh, uh, as well as on monitoring and humanitarian response. And so uh, there will be a healthy debate, but I hope that's where we land.
0: Great. We are about out of time. I just want to uh, thank you, Tom, for being with us today and giving us time. You have. Uh, a a big responsibility. There's a lot on your shoulders, and we're glad that you're in that position. So I want to thank you for being with us. I want to thank our audience for participating today. And this concludes our program. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.